tonight's our introduction night. So it's a little bit more informal. We're just going to kind of introduce the topic, introduce Matthew, introduce why we're doing this, why I feel like we should do this. You guys know that over the last three years that Exodus has been doing what we do, we have covered a lot of topics. If you go to our website, there are many, many series and all the MP3s available of topical issues that we've hit in Christianity. But we felt kind of convicted to come back to a biblical topic, like Matthew, where we're just going to kind of read the text together for a while. Let me tell you why I feel like we need to do that. Here's a couple things of why. Every series we start off with, we justify why we're going to spend any of God's time, any of his resources that we could use for other things, studying the subject we're going to do. Here's my pitch on Matthew. It's up on the screen. A lot of us spend a lot of time talking about God's word, reading about God's word without spending a lot of time in God's word. You know that our sponsoring church is New Song Church, and New Song for 2008 has committed to go from cover to cover in the Bible and just get everybody in the church, as many people will commit to it, to read from cover to cover. And if any of you feel like you want to do that, we've got the resource to help you. We've got these markers that we can give you that show you each week what to read, and we're going to go through the whole thing. Because I feel committed to the spiritual covering of New Song, we thought we're going to do something similar. Rather than going cover to cover, because we can't do it in much detail, we're going to take one book and see what we can do to rediscover Scripture. Because frankly, I think we all know, most of us, we read Scripture when we need to look up a certain passage, when we're dealing with a certain topic, but rarely do we just open Scripture and just soak it up page by page. That's one reason. I think that the words of Scripture are God's primary means of... What's the fill-in-the-blank that would be there? The primary means of speaking or communicating. But many of us don't believe that. And I want to show you as we go through Scripture that we can rediscover that together. Here's some reasons I picked Matthew in particular. It's the most extensive gospel. Matthew has some great uh, teachings of Jesus. And I think that in the end, it ends with a great commission going forward for us that we need to hear as a group too. Because one of the things that we do very well as a group is study together, debate together, discuss together, and we need to learn to translate into doing together. And Matthew ends with the Great Commission. Hopefully, that'll inspire us to do that. So you see that my prayer is that the words of Scripture are going to surprise us in a way. That we're going to discover Jesus all over again. They're going to be something that you haven't seen. How does that happen? Well, we've grown together as a group in a lot of ways by covering all these topics. And sometimes we think we remember what the words of the gospel say, and when you encounter them one more time in a fresh way, you think, wow, not only do I not remember that, but that actually causes me to think twice about what I think I know. That's what I'm hoping to do with this series. There's another reason that we're going to cover Scripture and not just another topic, because there's some bad habits that I think we need to avoid. Some of them we notice in here once in a while. We laugh about them. But they're important that we, as a group covering Scripture, learn to avoid some of these things. Here's a couple of them just to walk through. The first one is paraphrasing. We do this in this group. You guys know we've come up with a name for it. We call it sometimes the good times translation in here. That's when somebody just throws out a paraphrase of a verse. It's a bad habit. We need to avoid it. How do we avoid it? Well, one of the ways is actually we need to learn Scripture. In my youth, we used to memorize Scripture, okay? I say like in my youth, like I'm some old man, but I am. Compared to some of you guys, yeah, I'm old. We used to go to this thing called Mighty Memorizers where they gave us stars for memorizing Scripture, okay? 
they had to kind of, you know, whatever it took. But we, we were taught that it was good to memorize Scripture. I feel sad that in our churches we don't memorize Scripture anymore. We don't place an emphasis on it. In fact, I feel like the PowerPoint is taking away our ability to read Scripture because we only look at that one little thing that's on the screen and we don't really learn much. When it's gone, it's gone from our memory. Why is paraphrasing bad? Because it's inaccurate. The Word of God has a meaning and it's been written a certain way and we need to know what the exact words say. We need to hold each other accountable. When somebody goes, hey, there's a verse somewhere that says something, we need to go, hey, uh, let's cite the actual verse. We need that kind of emphasis on reading so we don't just paraphrase. Inaccurate repetition is another thing that we see a lot of. And that's like the game of telephone, I often say. That's when like one person hears it and they repeat it and they repeat it and repeat it by the third or fourth person. It's a totally different teaching. Why does that happen? Because we're not in the Word. We're not in the Scripture. We're not reading together. Because we're just relying on what somebody else says. I can't tell you how many inaccurate theologies I encounter because somebody heard a sermon, they heard a radio preacher, they listened to something, they read a book, and then they just told a friend. And the friend didn't hear it quite right. Maybe the, the thing they heard wasn't quite right. But let's assume it was. The friend didn't hear it quite right, and then they repeated it. And then they repeated it again. And then I've heard it, and I thought, where does that come from? All right? That's a habit we need to kick together. How do you do that? Reading Scripture. We're going to read it together. Ignoring the genre. We're studying a gospel. It's a type of literature that the Holy Spirit chose to work through. There was a gospel writer who wrote a gospel. What is a gospel? A gospel is an account about Jesus. It's primarily telling us the story of Jesus. Tonight you're going to see when we look at a couple verses, it's important we understand what is the genre. It's about Jesus. You know the Bible's written in multiple genres, whether it's prophecy or, or poetry or books of wisdom or apocalyptic literature or a gospel, an epistle. It could be a book of law, a book of history. We know that all of those are included. We need to understand what the genre is as we try to understand Scripture because it does make a difference. Fourth is personal interpretation. You know, the Word of God speaks to us. But we need to be clear together about what it means. In the church, there's been a tendency to let people just decide what they want it to mean. Just say, hey, what does this verse mean to you? You can just decide on your own. Whatever you feel like it needs to be, you just take it. I know why that occurred. Probably because we have a desire to tell people that the Word of God is speaking to you. But we somehow got people twisted up with our language because we would say to them, well, what does this mean to you? What does it mean to you? And we understood from that that we could just interpret it any way we wanted. That somehow the Word of God was going to speak differently to every single person in a different meaning, and that's inaccurate. We need to decide together as a body of believers, what did the Spirit intend when it inspired these words and this author? What did the author intend when he wrote them? What did they mean? And move away from just thinking that I can just interpret it any way I want to. But I want to encourage you to move towards personal application. It's okay to look at the scriptures and say, understanding what it means, how do I apply this to my life? It's great that this happened, this story is there. It's great that this truth has been identified. How do I apply it to my life? And the last one that I want to spend a little bit of time on tonight is citing verses out of context. Because this is... I think the most dangerous thing and why I want to spend time in the text, like just reading through the Gospel of Matthew. 
because if anything endangers our theology the most, I think, in the church these days, it's that we cite things out of context. These are the bad habits that I've listed up here that I'd like us to try to avoid, and I'm hoping we do that by reading together. Let's hear from you a little bit. Here's a verse. It's from Matthew. So we're kind of skipping ahead into the middle of the book. Here's the verse. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let's hear from you. What does this verse mean? By the way, I'll tell you, it's Jesus who's saying this. So what is Jesus saying when he says this? What does it mean? Yeah. Well, we're going to take it. We have to open up to what he was saying before and what he's going to say after. But he's talking to the disciples that they're going to follow them. There's a lot of things they're going to have to deny, but I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. I just know it's talking about denying yourself in the sense that there's a lot of things that are going to come your way later. Okay, I'll accept that. I know I'm being unfair. I'm putting you right in the middle of a verse with like a microscope. You can't see anything around it, above it. So that's kind of my point. What do you think? I think he's saying... You have to take your idea of the center of importance out of yourself so it's not located inside you. Uh, you have to correctly uh, place it in the correct place by taking up the cross and then engage by following me. Okay. Anyone else? Hazard a guess what this verse means? When I, like, growing up in the, the church or whatever, I, what I always got out of this, what people always told me, was that, um, like denying the sinful nature of what we have and then basically taking up the cross means, which means like putting our, what we have on the cross and then what we're gonna do is we're gonna, um, you know, we're gonna take up our cross, deny ourselves, follow him. Deny yourself, what does that mean when someone says that to you? What do you think it means? What I think it is, is yeah. denying our old nature. Okay. And you said when growing up in the church, do you, when, do you remember somebody just like citing this to you and telling you what it means? Is that what you remember? Like somebody's like, hey, here's a verse, and this is... It's cited all the time, like, in a, and, you know, a lot of people cite this verse. How many people have heard this verse cited to them at some point, right, in answer to a conversation? Okay, this is why I picked it, because it's a common verse. We've, a lot of us have heard it. Let's look at the context for a minute. Now I'm going to go to this to show you why this is important, because it's kind of a narrow view. Here's the full view that you should be looking at. We start with a very high view, like the entirety of Scripture, because Scripture shouldn't contradict itself. We kind of move down and think, well, what's the genre? What's going on in this? What type of book are we looking at? We look at the book and the story itself that's going on. Then we get down a little bit deeper, maybe look at those surrounding verses, as some of you have started to ask, like, what's going on? Let me tell you what's going on in this story. And you can kind of follow along if you want to open up to Matthew 16. Jesus has just come back to the disciples. And he's asked them this question. Who do people say that I am? And they say like a variety of people like Elijah. and They think you're different people. Okay, great. Who do you say that I am? And the disciples start to answer. Except Peter gets it dead on right. Let's pick it up right here in verse 16. Simon Peter answered him, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Peter hits the jackpot. He answers correctly, and Jesus says, 
Blessed are you because you couldn't have known this for yourself. My Father revealed this to you. And then, Jesus goes on to begin talking about his death. Now think of this scene for a moment. Jesus is saying, who do people say that I am? Who do you say I am? Peter nails it. Jesus then gives Peter and the other apostles great spiritual authority over the church. This is a great high moment in the gospel message. Then Jesus begins to reveal that he's going to be betrayed and crucified. And that he's going to rise again on the third day. Peter, fresh with this great spiritual authority, jumps in and says, no, we're not going to let that happen. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Whoa, he was like right here. Jesus brings him down here. And Jesus begins to explain to him that he's thinking about the wrong things and then says these words. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. Does it change the meaning and context? Does it explain to us much more what this verse means? Because if I just showed you the verse like I did earlier, it could mean deny yourself, don't be selfish. Deny yourself, like don't be rich, give up your money. Pick up your cross. Uh, that means that like, you should suffer as a Christian. If you're not suffering, you're not really a Christian. How many people have heard that? The life of following Jesus is tough. If you're not suffering, then you're not denying yourself and picking up the cross. You know, then there's something wrong with your spiritual walk if you're not carrying that cross, whipping yourself the whole time, you know. Now hear it in context. Peter has answered correctly, and then immediately right afterwards starts to say, no, Lord, we're not going to let this happen. Like, back off, I'm the new bodyguard of the kingdom. <laughs> and Jesus is saying, you don't get it. It's not going to be glory now and death later. It's going to be the other way around. It's going to be death now and glory later. Yes, you have the keys to this kingdom. Yes, I'm going to build my church. Yes, you have spiritual authority, but don't get confused. You want to follow me? Then deny yourself, take up the cross. Do you see how now at least if we're going to start applying this to our lives, we know what the context is? Okay. Look at the exact words in Scripture. Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? All those words are part of a complete sentence and a thought and a paragraph and a dialogue. And they fit into that genre. You just keep going up. It's a gospel message. It's about Jesus and his story. There's, there's a discussion going on, and we need to be in the middle of that entire discussion to understand what this one verse means. Yeah? I understand sort of the denying yourself, denying your sinful desires, denying the desires of yourself. Uh, but how does it take you to cross? Yeah, I think Peter feels at this moment that in jumping up and saying, Lord, we're not going to allow this to happen to you, that he somehow realized, like, we figured out that he's the Christ, and now it's going to usher in his kingdom of glory. We're not going to allow people to put him on trial and put him to death. Like, he's the Christ, and we're the apostles. We have this authority. 
And Jesus is saying, you've got it all wrong. You want to follow me? You've got to deny yourself, which is deny that glory that you think you're about to take. And the pick up the cross is meant figuratively to Peter, for at least temporarily, since tradition tells us he was later crucified. So he's not saying that all 12 of you are going to be dragging crosses behind me up to the hill to Calvary. But he is basically saying, like, you're going to have to pick up your cross and follow me. Like, you're, it's, you're going to be in the same place, in a place of suffering, in a place of eventually death. This is not going to be like, hey, we're in the kingdom of glory now. This, that's for later. One of the things we do is we take this passage and we look at it ourselves and we start applying it to us immediately. I like that we apply scripture to our lives. But you can't just take the context out and say, all right, I need to pick up my cross without understanding what was he intending to mean by those words to begin with. So if the context is Peter and disciples don't think that now that you've identified me as the Christ that we're going to just walk into this great kingdom of glory, that first what's going to happen is I'm going to suffer, you're going to suffer, and that's going to lead to a greater glory that comes later. Okay, now we understand what the thing was said for. Now we sit back and go, all right, now how do I apply that to me? How do I apply that? Am I somebody who seeks glory now? Am I somebody who's misunderstanding how Christ's work through suffering and death led to greater glory? Am I someone who's avoiding suffering and death right now? As, as opposed to just blindly looking at it and saying, okay, pick up the cross. That could mean almost anything. Like It's a specific thing. And once you understand how it was spoken and what the dialogue was, then you go, how do I use that in my life? You know, the, the thing I could tell you is, imagine if you walked up to me and you said, hey, a character in a movie, he said this thing. What does it mean? Most of us would go, I don't know. I didn't see the movie. I don't understand. Who was he speaking to? What was it about? You know, somebody goes, I had this great quote. What do you think of this? Like, I don't know. Like, what was going on in the background? What was the dialogue about? And that's kind of what we tend to do. But for some reason, because we think it's spiritual just to cite something scriptural, then we just kind of throw it out there. And that's what I want to try to avoid. I've said before that the Bible is not a book of quotes. It's not something where we get to say something and then cite a reference like a footnote. Go like, you shouldn't be selfish. Matthew 16, 24, deny yourself, pick up the cross. See, the context at least helps us understand what he's not saying. And in this context, I think he's not, he's not talking about selfishness. Well, you could say that Peter maybe was selfish because he wanted glory or he didn't want to suffer. He didn't want Christ to suffer. But it's really about recognizing what was really happening in the gospel story and seeing how Christ was going to fulfill that work in a way that none of us could see if we were the disciples. How do we apply that to our lives? Let me try one more and see if this kind of makes sense. Again, I tell you, this is Matthew 18, 19 to 20. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree on anything and ask for it, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Or when two or three of you come together in my name, there I am with you. What does the verse mean whenever two or three of you are there, I am there with you? How many of you have heard that verse cited? Yeah, this is like very, very common in our churches and in our prayer. Like two or three are gathered, I am there with you. What does it mean? Yeah. God is there because meeting of the minds come together on Christ. Okay. The meeting of the minds, like agreement? Yeah, like well, two or three coming together. So you, on purpose, are coming together in order to bring God's word, therefore he'll be there. How many people have just heard it stated this way? Whenever two or three believers are together, Jesus is there with them. 
Okay, what happens if there's only one of them? Jesus is not there? <laughs> like if you're, so Jesus is not in your life unless you're hanging out with, this is a great argument for community and fellowship, right? So if you want to spend time with Jesus, make sure you get at least one more person there. Is that what it means? Here's a more troubling one. This is just verse 19 by itself. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Let me read it again. Pay very close attention to these words because this, this could be a very powerful thing. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. What does that verse mean? What does it sound like it means? Let's ask it that way. What does it sound like it means? It's like a magical formula for prayer. Like, okay, we agree that we should get a million dollars. Let's ask for it in Christ's name. Yeah, how about, let's do that for World Vision right now. Do you agree that we should have a million dollars? I agree. I mean, I agree. Do you agree? All right, well, so let's just pray right now in agreement. I mean, we have, how many people agree we should get a million dollars for World Vision? We got a lot of agreement in this room, okay? So, is that going to happen? Oh, you have little faith. If you had just the faith of a mustard seed, the Lord said, it would happen. Maybe that's why we're struggling, huh? All right, anyone think it would happen if we agreed to it? Why is this verse taught this way? It's because it's taken out of context. You see, when the scriptures were written, especially in the Greek language, by the way, not unlike English, people didn't just write random sentences. They were part of a paragraph, you know? And you need to read the paragraph to understand it, all right? I'm not going to pretend I'm a Greek expert. That's Erica's domain. I'm just going to tell you that the Bible writers wrote in complete thoughts, not in little quotes that we can pick out when we want to. This is a dangerous, out-of-context quote because you might think, like, who cares about this? Who cares about citing out of context? Well, here's who cares. Somebody that you know has a close relative that's dying. And we get together and we say, the Bible assures us that if we agree together, it will be done. So maybe it's not silly like the World Vision example of a million bucks. Maybe it's serious, like a child who's facing an illness that's life-threatening. Maybe it's a situation that's rocking the world of somebody. We're like, we're going to get together and agree together. Maybe the whole church comes together in agreement and says, we agree. I even hear people pray sometimes. You know, where like people are praying together in groups and there's one person praying. You hear people saying like, yes, yes, yes. I mean, are they psyched? What are they doing? Are they like high-fiving each other like mentally? Like, yes, yes. It comes from our doctrine of agreement that if we agree, it will be done. It will be bound. It's going to happen. That's where that comes from. Let's read the whole thought together. If you have a Bible, open up to Matthew 18. I'm going to start in verse 15. I'm only going to read five verses, but these five verses are the complete thought. Here's the title of the passage as put in the NIV, just so that you know. It says, a brother who sins against you. Oh, wait, wait, this isn't about prayer. This is about a brother who sins against you. Let's read the complete thought together. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would 
a pagan, or a tax collector. So let's make sure we're tracking. This is about discipline of going to your brother who sinned. You first go, you tell them. If they don't listen to you, take two or three more and confront them with their sin. How many people enjoy doing this? This has got to be one of the hardest disciplines of confrontation among believers. You're supposed to sit down and say, brother, you have sinned. And then if they go, what are you talking about, man? You're crazy. You sinned. And you say, all right, hang on for a second. Then you go get two or three others, and you show up like a gang with bats, like just tapping them like this, you know? (laughs) Go, brother, you have sinned. This is not easy for us to do. I think Jesus knew this was not easy for us to handle matters in this way. I've had this situation come up. And I'll admit right now that I sinned, according to the scriptures, I just ran the other way and ignored it. I didn't confront the person. All right? It's uncomfortable. I've also had somebody in the church confront me about a sin and say, can I meet with you and sit down? I was like, oh, 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 this is so uncomfortable. But praise God for that person because they did such a great thing in calling me on something that I needed to get better at. All right? Jesus knew this procedure, even though it was rightly ordained by God, is uncomfortable. So this is when he says next, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, again, meaning like, let me say it one more time, not out of context all by itself. Again, following the same thought, I tell you, that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Does it change the meaning? What Jesus is really saying is, this is a tough thing I'm asking you to do. So let me assure you that if you guys come together and do what I've told you, whatever you agree on among two or three of you, that settles the matter. That settles the matter because I trust that in wisdom, you've confronted the person once, now you've done the harder thing of bringing two or three people forward and you've confronted them again. And I'm telling you, that's hard enough for you to do, so I've got your back. Whatever you agree on will be bound in heaven. That seals the deal. And again, just one more time, let me repeat it. If you agree on it, that's what you're going to get. And I'm there with you. I'm giving you my assurance that if you do this difficult thing, I'm there with you. Yeah? Do you think maybe not for the early church, but just these 12, and it doesn't apply to anybody outside of those 12, like those two or three of you? It could. You know what? In context, and there are people who've argued that he's speaking more narrowly in almost every gospel account, specifically to the disciples. So let's say that you took that interpretation. By the way, let's say that you got together the whole body of believers and we wrestled and we said there's like two different interpretations we're not really sure. It's either he was speaking, setting up a model for the church to follow this procedure or he was setting it up just for the disciples. Okay, let's say that we can't really even figure out which one it is and we say we've educated the whole body. We go, it's somewhere between those two. What's good about that is we've identified what we know. We've been humbled to identify what we can't determine for certain. But the most important part is we've still given context to those words so they're not like walking around like a headless horseman out there promising that every person you pray for and agree for is going to suddenly be healed or that everything you agree on as a church body is going to suddenly be done, which is 
what I've heard that verse used in over and over and over. So even if we don't know the exact meaning of, does he really mean just disciples, the church, I'm comfortable. Because it still shows that the context comes through for us to understand what the last couple verses are, which I think are the dangerous ones to just leave dangling by themselves. That's why I want to walk through Scripture together. Because when we do topical stuff, which I love to do, and you know we hit topics really hard, and we go deep and long on a lot of these topics, the downside sometimes is that we can take verses and just throw them up on the screen like quotes. The downside is that I could have a proposition in my head that I believe, and then I find scripture to support it. In this day and age, I've said that it's easier to do this because the computer research we have of the Bible doesn't allow us to read the book itself anymore. You want to look for something that talks about illness, just type illness into a, you know, an online Bible, and like all these verses come up. And then you can just pick one without even reading what's around it. In the old days when you had to actually use a concordance or flip pages, you at least might accidentally read the context on the way to looking for the verse. We don't even do that anymore. The computer gives us even more tunnel vision than we had before. This is what I'm trying to get around, is reading scripture together so that it might surprise you. So that something you thought in scripture comes out and you think, wow, that's something different. An example that I've often used about the way Scripture surprises me is that for a long time I had a theology that Jesus only seemed to heal when he was being challenged and he was showing his authority. And then you read in the first couple chapters of Mark that while he was in Capernaum, he just one day just opened up the doors to the house he was staying to start healing people. That's the kind of thing where Jesus meets you sometimes in the midst of Scripture and surprises you because we've got great theology for why Jesus used his miracle power sparingly to all this stuff, but once in a while you just flip the pages and you go, Wow, that really challenges what I think and what I believe. That's what I want to do with Matthew. Next week, I want to start with chapter 3. All right, We just went through the whole Christmas story, so I'm not going to make you go through it again. I want to start with chapter 3 and the first 12 verses of chapter 11. We're going to be covering John the Baptist and his story as it appears in Matthew next week. What would I ask of you? Pick up a Bible and read chapter 3 this week between now and next week. I'm going to try a discipline, if I can, of not putting the entire chapter in PowerPoint because it would be really small. But also because I want to just follow my own challenge of staying away a little bit from just throwing every scripture we have on the screen and us getting into the habit of actually bringing a copy of the Bible. Start that discipline with me, if you can, of just remembering to bring it with you so we can open the scriptures together. I see a bunch of you have it with you. We'll have some of the real important verses but I want you to just get in the habit of looking at it so you can challenge me and go, I don't know if the context supports what you're saying. Because what about this verse, just three verses earlier, where does that fit into the story? All right? We're kicking off. It's going to be good. I promise you it's not going to be just reading through Matthew. I've got a lot of great works that we're reading through that's going to give us some good challenge for what we may have missed the last few times we walked through a gospel message. Let's pray and close a little bit of worship. Lord, our task is to approach the gospel of Matthew that points directly to your life. Lord, we've covered a lot of topics in this group, and we've been challenged and we've grown. But I pray that now, let the words of Scripture speak directly to us as we seek to just study and learn more about you. Lord, the entirety of Scripture points to you, Jesus. And I pray that as we read this gospel account, Well, I'll pray honestly, Lord. I want to fall in love with you again. We spend so much time talking about you and and talking about what you want us to do. But Lord, 
just the person and the loving God incarnate Jesus, would you let us just fall in love with you again? Bring us back to your word longingly with a hunger, Lord, not out of discipline, but a desire to get to know this Jesus that we've fallen in love with. Pray this in your name. Amen.